Welcome to the Digital Health Insights Podcast, where NZ Hits CEO Scott Arrell brings you key thought leaders to share their experience, views, and vision on all things digital health and more. Full tech enablement is essential for creating world-class health systems, and Scott's guests discuss how this can be achieved, the challenges that need addressing, the opportunities it creates, and the benefits delivered to health, disability, and social care services in New Zealand and worldwide. Kia ora katoa. Welcome to Digital Health Insights with Scott Arrell. Firstly, a big shout out for NZ Health IT, or NZ HIT for short, who is the sponsor of this podcast channel and is the peak body for the digital health industry sector in New Zealand. We're a not-for-profit incorporated society established in 2002 to represent members' interests in health IT, healthcare services, consultancy, policy, and much more. Today's episode is very special as Pat Kerr most recently finished her position as telehealth coordinator for the New Zealand Telehealth Leadership Group, having played an influential part in its formation right through to the significant role it now plays. Pat is not only a very good friend, but she is an inspirational person who has made a huge contribution to New Zealand's digital health scene since moving here from New York by way of the UK 35 years ago. I'm going to let Pat tell her special story to you herself in this episode, so won't steal her thunder in this introduction, but safe to say that you're in for a thoroughly interesting 40 or so minutes that will leave you wondering how she has packed so much into her career and life. As always, make sure to tap the subscribe and share buttons on your favorite podcast app so as many people as possible can listen to Pat's story. Make sure to share the love around. Also, don't hesitate to get in touch directly with me by sending an email to ceo at nzhit.nz. I'm always pleased to get your messages, questions, comments, and guest suggestions. And don't forget to keep an eye on our website at nzhit.nz. Man, we've been getting so much news lately that it's been hard to keep up with. Let's not keep Pat waiting any longer. Well, hi there, Pat. Thanks for joining us today. I know that uh, you know you've been so busy of late, and you know the, all the things that you've been doing. So great that you could join us today. And so, how's it going uh, at your end or neck of the woods? Actually, you, you you're not far from me. You you live up at Oriwa Way, and I'm in Albany. So, how's it going up there at, at sunny Oriwa? It is, and as, as a matter of fact, I'm looking out the window from my condo that. Uh, I can look out on the on the beautiful blue waters of Oriwa Bay and and the Fungaparo, and it's a nice sunny day, and I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Having moved about a year and a half ago from a ten acre rural property, <laughs> it's quite yeah. a change. Although I did live in apartments in New York City, so I, I am thoroughly enjoying uh, the change and being close to the sea. Yeah, that would be great. Actually, Oriwa is such a fantastic spot, and I guess you're making the most of uh, uh, walking along the beach and. Down to the township there, it's not far from where you live, is it? No, it's not. The, the beach is a lovely three-kilometer-long uh, beach, and it's great for walking. And 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 the community is, is you know, it's buzzing. It's getting a lot of cafes and restaurants, and let's hope that we when we get back to level one, mm. it'll start really buzzing again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get it buzzing. Yeah, and actually, for the listeners' sake, while we're doing this recording, this interview, uh, in Auckland, including Oriwa, is at level 2.5 in the sort of COVID levels, and the rest of the country is at level 2. So um, maybe in a week's time we might go down a level, hopefully. So, um, But that gives you the context of, of what we're talking about. And um, you mentioned you were in Coatesville, so you had a 10-acre block, you had, a, you had a, a, a lifestyle block, really, as they call it. But um, I've known quite a few people with lifestyle blocks, and I'm not quite sure that's the right description, actually. It's a, there's a lot of work. 
It's, well, it's a lifestyle, <laughs> that's for sure. I was there for 35 years because I moved to New Zealand in 1985, and I had to learn this New York girl had to learn a whole lot about paddock maintenance and horses and 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 and, and all that goes with it, tractors and and planting and. And, you know, and, and and water maintenance and all of that sort of thing. It's it's definitely is a lifestyle. And and surely there are a lot of people that come out from the the city uh, who don't necessarily last that long when they realize how much work is involved in looking after the land and and the property. Yeah, that's right. Well, years ago, you know, um, I, I don't think I've ever shared this with you, Pat. And um, and for the listeners' sake, yeah, Pat and I are. Uh, uh, Good friends, very good friends, in fact, and you know, so I've known each other for quite some time. So, but I don't, don't think I've shared this with you, Pat. That I, when I was younger, I think when Anna and I were married, gosh, it's over over forty years ago now. Um, I used to work on dairy farms, and you know, so one one of them at that top back in those days was one of the biggest dairy farms in New Zealand back then, and that I think it had about six hundred cows, which you know, in those days was a lot of a lot of cows, to be frank. Um, and nowadays, of course, we have yeah. You know, far more than that in some farms um when i sort of got out of that game and we got into kiwi fruit actually um i sort of vowed and declared, declared i wasn't i wasn't going back to even to a lifestyle block with, <laughs> after milking milking 600 cows uh, every morning and night for quite some time frankly <laughs> um and i'm glad that you mentioned uh you know 35 years you came out here from new york and because uh, i was going to ask you um and you know what i'm like pat sort of facetiously about your your accent where did that come from you know because it doesn't sound like from Taipei or or carterton or somewhere like that does it <laughs> No, no, not actually. I actually came to New Zealand from the UK, so I'm, I'm quite probably an international. I was I was born in Trinidad, in the West Indies. Of uh, uh, my mom was born in Hungary, and my dad was born in New York City of German parents. So quite a, a mixed background. But my parents moved back to the States when I was about six years old, and then I grew up on Long Island, <laughs> and and then moved into Manhattan, New York City, after I graduated university. So spent quite a few years, and then I moved to England in 1982. I was working wow. at American Express, so I spent. So it was actually not planned, but it was a good way of coming to New Zealand because in New Zealand, 1985 was still very, very English. Uh, mm. Uh, so I was in the UK for about three, almost three and a half years before I moved to New Zealand. Uh, so my career yeah, and, was corporate. Right, yeah, and and the move to New Zealand then, what, what uh, brought that about? Well, I, my second husband-to-be convinced me to, uh, to move to New Zealand. We had met a number of years before through motor racing. Uh, he was one of the founders of McLaren. Racing team grew up with Bruce McLaren, uh, famous Kiwi, and uh, our paths crossed uh, again after a number of years, and he convinced me to give up my corporate career and to move to New Zealand. Uh, he had, by then he had come back to New Zealand um, after having been involved in, in with the team Brabham and team McLaren for many years in England, and so I moved out here in 1985, said goodbye to my corporate career. I was with American Express. Before that, with Texaco, very capitalistic background. <laughs> uh, and I gave it out to be a lady of a lady of leisure. Well, that didn't last for very long. I got I got antsy and and got involved as soon as I got my residency. Uh, I got involved in in some telecommunications work uh, because I did have an IT background mm. and uh, became one of the founders of Two Ends, 
the Telecommunications Users Association, which was a fledgling uh, mm. group modeled on a similar group at the time in the UK. So I got involved with them and became their first business manager of two ends, and that was 19, late 1986, 1987. Well, okay. Well, that's that's something I didn't know actually. I, I think you may have mentioned the two ends part um, uh, a little while ago, but yeah, didn't realize that that's what was what your role was there. And uh, hey, um, and you know, you know, I'm also like Pat. I'm I'm great at embarrassing people, and 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 quite often when I do that, I I, I tend to embarrass myself at the same time. But I, I just want to say that you know. Um, you know, you're inspirational, frankly, because, you know, when, you know, knowing even just part of your background and, and the number of things you've been involved in and influenced over the time uh, in New Zealand, you know, you, you got, you know, I got to tip my hat to you because, you know, I, I don't think you tell your story um, that often. And, and I don't think you tell it, tell it to the extent that really describes, you know, how influential you've been in, in New Zealand's uh, tech sector and, and particularly in, in health. Uh, particularly when we when we talk about telehealth, for example. So um, I just wanted to put that out there. Um, and one of the reasons we're talking is actually, to, you know, your involvement with telehealth um, is still there, but, you know, you've just recently resigned as the, uh, the, um, the telehealth coordinator, uh, which frankly... Yeah, was as not a very good description for what you were doing. But the, the the telehealth coordinator with the telehealth leadership group, weren't you? And you're on on the executive of that of that. So, um, I this is part of the telehealth series. But I just wanted to also make sure people understand the background that you know you, you didn't just sort of appear from New York um, a couple of days ago and and here we are talking. <laughs> you, you know, you've you've made a huge contribution to to the um, Kiwi way of life. So I wanted to thank you for that. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for acknowledging that. Yeah, I, uh, as I said, with two ends, because I ended up becoming their executive director. Um, so the first, <laughs> well, I got a promotion when, when we when we got quite a few members and some funding and some new offices. And so I was there for probably almost five years, I think. Uh, so I ended up get, getting into, uh, and my, again, I ca carried on with my IT background, but I did get quite involved in telecommunication. It was a very interesting time in New Zealand. Uh, back in the early 90s, late 1980s, early 90s, because it was deregulation. And mm -hmm. here I was having come from major big corporates where we were pretty insulated. You know, American Express companies like that had their own lobbyists in Washington, mm -hmm. and they never got to talk to government people. And here I was dealing with the likes of, you know, the CEOs of Telecom and, and the minister, Morris Williamson, at the time. Um, and it was a very interesting time. And, of course, New Zealand was an experiment really, for a lot of the international telcos at the time. We had Bell Canada, Bell South, all came out here. We had the breakup of the post office uh, in, into Telecom New Zealand, and, and then we had the regional telecom company. So it was a very volatile, dynamic time. Uh, interesting, I can remember. I mean, it's really dating, but there were things we went through like number portability. I mean, people just take it for granted now, but when, you know, the amount of, effort and lobbying and, and technical hurdles that we had to come just to achieve number portability when we got mm. competitive phone companies was really amazing uh, that, you know, that we that we did a lot, a lot of the interoperability when we started getting competition, the beginning of clear communications. Mm, yeah. The first name a lot of people don't realize was the alternate telecommunications company, ATC. Oh, really? I didn't know. I didn't know that. So. Yes, it was Clear's first incorporated name, alternate, alternate to telecom. And then I think about a year later, they became Clear. 
communications. We ran the very first telecommunications conference in New Zealand. The telecom people who had been ex-post office people didn't know how to actually didn't even know how to sell anything. All they had ever known was taking orders for, for phone installations. So it was and and of course they didn't know anything. They really the whole aspect of IT and the role of IT and telecommunications integration, interoperability was was foreign to a lot of the post office people. So it was quite a learning curve and, and it was really the IT influence. You know, allowed okay. a lot of that to happen. So that was, that was really how I, you know, I got involved uh, in in um, in the technology field in New Zealand was through telecommunications. Um, Would have uh, been interesting times, as you say, quite volatile, lots of change, and uh, I guess um, positioning uh, along the way as well. And yeah, I guess your your, your knowledge and expertise was probably, you probably had a sweet spot there where you were able to. So as you say, the the Kiwi way was would have been very different to corporate in the UK or America, where you know you you couldn't just go and knock on a on a minister's door and have a chat, could you? Back back uh, anywhere else in New Zealand, probably. No, 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 absolutely not. So you know, and of course we saw the emergency of mobile communications. You know, so it was all really quite a quite an exciting and innovative uh, innovative time. That's that's for sure. And yeah. and from there, well, I. Have, I I'm sorry. I, I actually remember. I know. I remember one of my first mobile phones. I think it, it wasn't. It was. Well, it wouldn't have been the first because the first was sort of one of those big, big brick things um, that you needed a suitcase to carry around with you. But um, I, it was. A, I think it was sort of a, a smaller Nokia back in those days. And and I can't even remember the telco that I would have been connected to. But um, you know, you you could text to someone else, and this whole idea of texting was amazing. Um, but then, but you could only text to someone who was on the same telco you know you couldn't text anywhere else you know and and i remember thinking back then that's a bit weird you know why couldn't i why can't i just text anywhere and i, I can't remember the point when you could but then all of a sudden you were you could yeah you know, so and you were probably involved in all those 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 oh, days wouldn't you and and there were extra charges too you know, yeah true <laughs> there were cross-network charges so all of that you know that had to go on behind the scenes through the regulatory uh, regulatory commission and so on there was a lot a lot of work behind the scenes where the telcos did did actually cooperate with one another despite the the, the front-facing marketing you know competitive side uh, there had to be in order to achieve interoperability mm. and of course we take all that for granted now <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, and and, so, and and what else? So you you had a stint there with I think it was simple and for a while. Uh, I did, I did. In between, in between, then I I after two ends, I I started working with a small telecommunications consulting company, um, and we did quite a bit of work in business case development, cost studies, and did work for the likes of the New Zealand Herald and and others and looking at their telecoms networks and what their cost structures were and how they might, you know, how they might make some cost savings and efficiencies. So we did quite a bit of that work. And lo and behold, a study came out of the States and it was Arthur Little, I think it was A.D. Little, uh, came out of a study again from the telecommunications perspective on, on how telecommunications could help to, to solve America's health problems. And it was a major watershed study that, that again, it came from a consulting firm, so it didn't get the full recognition of academia at the time, um, but it got a lot of recognition from the business perspective and from health providers. 
And I don't remember the exact numbers. I should go back over that again. But it was in the many hundreds of millions that they forecast from the U.S. health system. And a lot of lot of international jurisdictions picked up on it, including New Zealand. So the, the consulting company I was with, they managed to get a grant um, to study how telecom, how a telecommunications network could assist in the delivery of health services. And we worked with Waikato, which was Waikato Health at the time, free mm. district health board. Uh, and we got a grant uh, with some extra funding through uh, for, for running an ISDN network. And some users <laughs> might remember ISDN uh, network. To, to see how the cost for delivery of, and it was primarily outpatient services. So we studied the entire Waikato region and what was then called the five T's, five T hospitals um, from Hamilton outward. And, and uh, but it was all done from a telecommunications perspective as opposed to from a, from a health delivery perspective. But we were able to show significant savings with just, and I think it was a very conservative 20% of the outpatient um, uh, clinic services conducted over video, and it was video at the time, and that they could actually justify a full ISDN network. And at the time, the endpoints, the video conferencing units, I think it was either PictureTel or VTEL was the company, they were $100,000 per endpoint. These humongous, great big, uh, big TV, you know, the monitors, mm -hmm. all the hardware. And despite those costs, we were able to justify a network just doing 20% or possibly even less. Unfortunately, we, did, we couldn't get enough buy-in from the clinicians. Does that sound, you know, that we didn't have, <laughs> uh, so from the champions, they really weren't prepared uh, to go into it. We also, the issue was still to this day, all of the grants oh, very rarely were followed by OPEX or CAPEX to do the mm. investment to get to business as usual. So, yes, the handouts were there. You know, the, the companies sponsored the equipment, telecom sponsored the ISDN lines. But then when, when, when it was all done, somebody had to start paying for it. And the money wasn't there to, to justify the investment to get over that hurdle. Uh, so it took off quite slowly, but that's that's essentially how I got into telehealth was from the telecommunications perspective. Um, but there, because it was you know very little money around to do as much as we wanted to do, I did continue doing my IT consulting, and that's when I got involved with Simple. As an okay. So I spent quite a few years with them in their strategic consulting group. But in that time, I got to do a lot of work with the district health boards, not exclusively health. Uh, but a lot of business case worth, a lot of um, strategic planning, a lot of IS strategic plans. And it was it was a really very rewarding time. Um, but mm -hmm. I, I, I must share with the listeners my very first having come, as they say, from a capitalist corporate background. The first time the only, I've never been in a hospital other than to be in hospital as a patient or visiting. And the first time I had to go to Waikato Hospital for a meeting, I thought it just was the strangest feeling in the world. Because those days we wore suits and had carried briefcases mm -hmm. and, whatever, and went with my consulting colleagues and walked in like very official looking consultants, passed 
you know, past several wards and whatever to get to a meeting room. And I must, I'll never forget the feeling that it was really quite strained. Uh, but that was, you know, then therein lies the beginning of my, you know, my working in the health sector. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, talking about telehealth, and you, you know, say going back to those times where you, there was resistance from clinicians, which would be understandable back then. And then, uh, you know, something you know, brand new, you know, what sort of evidence was there around all that sort of stuff? You can you can imagine that, can't you? And and uh, yet we've still, you know, we've we, I guess we've had that for quite some time. And then we then we get to lockdown just a few months ago, and um, everything everything kind of went at the speed of light, didn't it? Overnight, it was just just amazing, wasn't it? And you were you and uh, Dr. Ruth Large, who's the chair of the telehealth leadership group, and um, Andrew at the telehealth resource center, and many others were just absolutely flat, flat out. Um, and and thank goodness that the telehealth leadership group was in place. You know, we we'd had yeah, you know, which you know, obviously I'm on that as well. And um, you'd been involved long long before I came along. And at times we felt, didn't we, that we were kind of pushing it uphill quite often. And uh, and then all of a sudden it, it kind of all fell into place. Uh, uh, yeah, taking advantage of a, of a pandemic in, in a way. Yeah, it did. I mean, it, you know, those intervening years, of course, we ran a number of pilots. Uh, it was even after that initial study that, that at Waikato, they did come up with some funding to do a couple of pilots in mental health and dermatology. And, mm. and uh, the mental health one didn't, didn't get very far, unfortunately, just because, because of all the work that we could do to help them. Uh, they just didn't have enough psychiatrists to really participate in the pilot, but uh, as much as we needed. But Dr. Amanda Oakley uh, really took on the teledermatology uh, in a very big way, and we did succeed in getting um, and in doing some clinical trials. And we worked with with um, uh, um, um, a number of overseas jurisdictions as well, and doing quite a bit of research. And we were able to prove the benefit of teledermatology. So Amanda, to this day, is world renowned. You know, she developed mm. she's called Dermnet, and is extremely well known. In that field, so so that was in a, the same time around the late '90s. Uh, Starship started and was the telepediatric network. So video conferencing was it. That was all it. But it was really education leading the way, and and health was piggybacking pretty much on what was happening at the time. Uh, so telepeds also got funding for Starship, although a lot of their work was in the education side more more so than the patient side. Uh, it took a while to get to get that side of it going. Uh, but there was teleradiology. So probably the three biggest ones that took off in New Zealand at the time were, were teledermatology, telepsychology, te telepsychiatry rather. Uh, so mental health did finally take off, the big South Island network, they were pioneers. Mm -hmm. And of course, teleradiology. And interest, another interesting story, uh, when they started teleradiology with YCAT, or they were about to spend, and again, I don't remember all the numbers, but quite a bit on raised flooring uh, to carry, to expand their the storage for all of the x-rays uh, in at okay. Very heavy, you know, the x-ray mm -hmm. media, the film media. And by going to teleradiology, they were able to save a huge amount of money on not having to totally reconfigure the rooms for storage of the film media. Uh, so, you know, it was a very, very early way of, of making some cost savings. But so there were quite a few fragmented um, um, initiatives going on through New Zealand at the time. And, of course, following what was happening internationally as well. 
In the midst of that, we had um, we started a group called the Health Informatics Found Foundation, and that was um, Health Informatics, which is again mm -hmm. a quite European term, the inf term informatics, which I had to get used to at the time. Um, and there was a group called NINS, Nursing Informatics New Zealand, and they were beginning, they were very, very active. Uh, and and uh, Brian Say, who was the CIO at Waikato at the time, said, Pat, I think we ought to have a group of health informatics, not just nurses. Okay, that sounds like a good idea. So we started the New Zealand Health Informatics Foundation. Wow. Mm -hmm. Brian was the first chairman, and I was a year later, I became the next chairperson um, of that one. Uh, and so you had a had a habit of starting <laughs> starting these things, but with lots of support and lots of teamwork, that's for sure. Uh, and that that the Health Informatics Foundation, we worked very closely with NINS. And after I I want to say about three or four years, we decided to merge uh, NINS and and did HIF, which became HINS. And, and HINS, many yeah. New Zealand listeners will certainly know. And HINS it just went from strength to strength to strength to strength. Uh, so that was that was, and they they were the very early. We had a telehealth interest, special interest group within Hins in the very early days, um, and after a couple of other studies, uh, I was still working with Simple at the time, and through a colleague, Malcolm Pollock, uh, and yep, I, a long-standing colleague of mine. Uh, he by then he had gone to the University of Auckland to head up NIHI, the National Institute of Health Innovation. And we got together after some studies and said, we really got to do something about this telehealth stuff. So Malcolm, with his amazing marketing skills, marketing persuasive and strategic writing skills, uh, we managed to uh, to get a group together. It was would have been late, late two, 2010, I think, around then. 2010, we had an, a very small group. And Graham Osborne, who was the head of, of the health IT board at the time, uh, agreed to give us some seed funding. And that was the very beginning of what today is the NZ Telehealth Forum and the Telehealth Leadership Group. And the good thing was, and the reason I think the group lasted as long as it did is because we produced. We did do, we yes. did talk, we did produce uh, to the point of, of, of what we have, you know, in New Zealand today with a very effective telehealth leadership group. Um, we had a, a big, there was a big symposium we had in 2012, and that was really when we kicked things off. It was called, it was at the University of Auckland at Tamaki, and we called it A Call to Arms. And we had, I think, well over 200 people mm -hmm. at the auditorium at the time, and we started with some working groups, and that, that was really when the telehealth forum really took off. Uh, so that would have been around 2012. Cool. And so Malcolm was the chair, the initial, you know, inaugural chair, and then was he then followed by uh, Dr. John Garrett? Was is that how? No, in between no? the no? part of that very original group, um, as I said, it was Graham Osborne. We had Dr. Michael Sullivan, who was the the, the uh, he preceded John Garrett. So Michael was a pediatric oncologist. Uh, eventually, he went to Australia, but he was the first. Uh, the chair in that role as a clinical leader. Okay. Uh, with mm -hmm. respect. And he was really quite, quite passionate uh, champion in terms of getting uh, telemedicine going uh, here in New Zealand. And of course, he was quite involved with Starship as well through the, through the telepediatric network. Mm. So Michael was, when Michael went to Australia, then because uh, John Garrett um, succeeded Michael in that role at, at Canterbury District Health Board. 
Yeah, yeah, and that, I think that's about. Uh, yeah, uh, and when John, I think it was sort of during that phase when John was stepping aside and and Ruth was taking over, when I kind of appeared on the scene, so close to six years ago, uh, that would have been going on, and uh, yeah, then yeah, uh, as just it, it, yeah, I guess what I'm yeah, heading to here is not knowing that we were going to have a COVID-19 pan, uh, pandemic and lockdown, um, those building blocks had started a long time ago. You know, you and Malcolm and, and others, um, you know, thank goodness you did that, as it turned out, because, uh, you know, we, you know the, the Ministry of Health and others sort of turned to the Telehealth Leadership Group um, and the Telehealth Resource Centre, you know, really to, to act very quickly to ramp up support for um, telehealth and and virtual health. Uh, I I have to use that that term uh, very uh, carefully, uh, <laughs> Pat. Otherwise, Ruth, Ruth will growl me next time she sees yes, me. I, know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just have to, if Ruth's listening at this point, just just turn off for a little bit. Just just tune back in in about uh, sixty seconds. <laughs> Using the term, that's true. But I mean, I think we've had a really good group along the way. The very first telehealth leadership group was was formed through an expression of interest. So we issued a formal expression of interest out, out to the sector and and received applications and then and then that, and then established the very first group. And since then we've we've uh, seconded uh, people have you know and some through the changes in their work or whatever have have come and gone, but we've got a really good uh, multi-skilled, multidisciplinary group of of, of people who are um, quite you know, quite quite committed. I mean, when we first started in 2000, and I and I and I have promised the um, the the new folks that and, and that are <clears throat> taken over from me with the leadership group is that you know I'll go back over some of my archives or whatever <laughs> in terms of what what where, when we started. But there wasn't a single telehealth uh, program manager or telehealth coordinator in a district health board. Mm. And, and now, uh, well, of more than more than half of them, plus in PHOs and others, have coordinators. We didn't have any telehealth. Uh, there were some champions, but there were no mm. formal appointments of telehealth clinical leaders. There were no governance uh, groups. There were no strategies. Uh, there were no, you know. So it's it. Even though people say we haven't done enough. When we look back, and and I would I would encourage readers. I probably am a bit biased here to look on the TRC website, there's a study that's posted there, and that was the most recent stock take, 2019 District Health Board stock bait. And it's quite a, a comprehensive study. We, It ended up getting a pretty quiet, soft launch because we were in the process of going through ministry um, uh, sign-off on it when COVID happened this year. We just decided it was going to take too long. It's, it's, it's been put up on the, on the TRC website, but it's quite a comprehensive study. Have things changed with COVID? Yes. Have they been turned upside down? Absolutely not, um, because there is a strong uh, foundations there. Otherwise, it couldn't have achieved, you know, the pivoting, so to speak, uh, that happened with COVID if those foundations weren't already in place in in quite a few, you know, quite a few um, uh, areas. And a lot of it, I looked back over some notes not long ago, and I dare I say I sound like an old fuddy-duddy, but, you know, back in the 1990s and the things, some of the presentations we were making about the barriers and the issues, 
we don't have to change too many words to see that a lot of them are still still there. We've made progress by all means. Thing we don't talk about the technology as much anymore. You know, interoperability, no. mm. we just take it for granted. Mm. Uh, that, that Teams users can talk to Zoom users, can talk to, you know, whatever that are right across the network. And and that, that's only happened within two or three years. And we've done a fair amount of advocacy work in that space. Um, and, the, and the leadership group achieved quite a bit in advocacy with, with groups like the Medical Council of New Zealand. Uh, their very first position statement on telehealth, telemedicine, was quite, I'll use the term, Dickensian uh, and very, very risk averse. Uh, we worked with them probably over a period of about a year and a half years and, and got that to the point where there was a clear recognition of the technology the benefits of the technology while while managing the safety and efficacy for patients. And, and there's quite a few of the professional organizations now have position statements and, and indeed responded extremely well. Allied Health, there are stars, absolutely, in terms of telehealth. They really did respond extremely quickly in COVID and went in, you know, mm -hmm. off consultations online uh, for, for their services. Yeah, and that, yeah, I experienced that myself. And going into lockdown, I'd, I'd, um, you know, I'd do a bit of running pat, and I'd actually hurt my knee the weekend just before, yeah, because we went into lockdown on the, on the Wednesday. So, out, out for a run, and and just sort of, I tripped or something like that, and sort of landed, landed badly on my knee. And um, gosh, the first couple of weeks, I was, you know, kind of probably lockdown was quite good in a way because I, I I could hardly walk anyway uh but then after the sort of second week things weren't getting better and so I got a hold of a, a physio friend of mine and said said to her hey I, I, I can't come and see you but what can we do and she said oh no no trouble Scott we can do a we can do a, a virtual you know, she used that word she said we can do a virtual consult and um you know it's in our system and and so we did and it was uh, thank goodness because it was a great help um but yeah, she, you know, I have to say, I said to her, look, actually, you're, the system you're using isn't that flash, uh, but you know, at least it's at least it works, and uh, you know, and, and the software system that she was using, which is used by a, a lot of um, uh, allied health in the private sector around New Zealand, um, I have to say, they're not that particular company is not a member of NZ Hit, by the way, they they should be, of course. Um, uh, so I said, I said to her, oh, you better go back to them and tell them that. There's far better to, um, video systems available nowadays. You could you could be doing a lot lot better than this, but at least what they were doing was was better than nothing, you know. Uh, yeah, and so and I agree. Allied is, uh, I, I guess it's that area where they embrace a lot of stuff like that, don't they? Quite quickly. Yeah, they do absolutely. And even in the you know in the private sector, I mean, there's another group of, of podiatrists who who mm. were ready to go. They had they had trained all their people in the in the protocols that are that were developed um, by Allied Health uh, through our telehealth leadership group for pro provision of services. And they went online with a hub. It's a group of seven foot mechanics, a group of mm. 19 podiatrists around the country create, went online with a hub and, and, and were providing online consultations almost overnight. And now they're doing it as part of their mainstream um, mm. services. Mm. So they were really quite good. Anecdotally, of course, we've all seen, you know, we, we're using the expression locking in the gains of COVID. And so it sounds like there were a lot of gains that we want, that we want truly to lock in. But some of them, perhaps we want to make sure that we, 
that we 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 uh, bring them to the next level. So you know, a lot of the GPs, mm. for example, reverted to telephone. A, either they hadn't they weren't fully set up to use video. They hadn't actually gone through that that <clears throat> setup, and the phone was a lot easier. And that's totally understandable. Uh, but as part one of the things that the that the leadership group did, we worked on, for example, on on charging regimes. You know, through through the reimbursement, through yeah. through um, through Southern Cross, and of course ACC, how they how their their charges were going to work or their reimbursement was going to work. So a lot of those things that have been talked about for some time and discussed and and discussed a bit more suddenly were either decided. Uh, virtually overnight, and I think a lot of people experience that. That you know, the same mm. describing. But you know, for example, with the charging. I mean, anecdotally, I can say I've got some friends that that both have had phone consults with their GPs and video consults. And one of the friends said, "Well, dear, I didn't really feel I should have to pay full price for that ten-minute phone call. That didn't feel like." you know, a full price thing. And I was saying, well, okay, you, you did get the knowledge, but she said, I didn't feel like I got much. Another friend said, oh, I love the video. I really felt I got my money's worth because being seen on video, you know, by the doctor and she, I felt the doctor had put in the time and so on. So mm-hmm. uh, that's the consumer is, is their viewpoints are, you know, yeah, certainly yeah, important yeah yeah and everyone's got to get used to it it's you know uh, I, I was similar I friends who i did a bit of a straw poll on on uh, my facebook amongst my, my facebook friends during lockdown saying you know hey you know I, have you have you tried video conferencing or uh, telehealth consult with your doctor and if so how, how did it go you know i, I suppose you know sort of 20 20 replied and uh, that they had and and about half of them absolutely loved it they said actually i don't want to I don't want to go to the clinic again. I, I really loved doing, you know, whether it was phone or, or video, that was fantastic. And uh, and I had asked about price and, and there was only one that said they had a five-minute call, phone call, and the doctor said, oh, I think you better come in. Um, and so when they went in, they were charged full price for the five-minute phone call to tell them to come in along with the full price for the coming in. Um, so that kind of left, you know, they, they, and that was probably, I said to them, well, it's probably more the doctor just, you know, uh, getting, you know, wasn't quite sure about the charging regime. So, because that was very early on in lockdown, and 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 those things will, you know, will iron out. Um, but you're right, you know, trying to lock those down is important. And uh, we did mention a little bit earlier, Pat, about sort of uh, clinician resistance to some of these things. But one of the things that you know we've seen is the development of the of KILN, the, the CILN, the, the Clinical Informatics Leadership Network, uh, which is I think 300 plus strong now, and that's a network of, of clinical leaders uh, who really have stepped up and said, "Hey, we want we we only we don't just want to lock lock in the good things that happened during the pandemic." Um, you know, we want to improve on them. So, mm. you know, I, I in my time in the sector. You know, which is sort of close to 18 years now. This is the first time when I've seen kind of you know an alignment across the sector with about certain things, whether we're talking about clinicians or industry players or uh, say Ministry of Health or DHB managers. There's there's um, I wouldn't say they agree on everything, uh, but there's been quite a quite a bit of uh, a thing. Let's say eyes opening are quite a bit wider than they used to be. Uh, yeah, as a result of the pandemic, which is, you know, there's got to be something come out of it, uh, something good come out of it, shouldn't there? 
Oh, there's no question. I mean, and we're already seeing two of it. You know, the <clears throat> some of the district health boards are definitely are 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 taking mm. a very uh, a strategic and tactical operational approach to to making the te- provision of of telehealth uh, services business as usual, and they're setting targets uh, and and actually taking it. You know, really becoming embedding it, so to speak. Uh, and not just relying on 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 the yes, they still need the champions. Of course, they need need the champions, mm. but really embedding the services into their into the way that they're doing delivery, rather than just leaving it up up to the services that kind of might want to be inter- do it or interested. And I think that you know the the corporate background in me will never lose that sort of business case mindset of cost benefit. Because regardless of and and, and you know of 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 the the uh, the quantitative or qualitative benefits, that a health dollar is only so big, and we can only stretch it so much. Mm. So if it's taken from one area, it has to benefit, you know, it has to benefit another area. And I think that that always is going to be the case. Mm. So um, I agree. And, yeah. and I think one of the big challenges now, technology is no longer the challenge. Enough of it, maybe having enough devices. When suddenly everyone is using Zoom, our colleague Lucy Westbrook talks about how you know not they were short of webcams, they were short of all, you know. So yes, they have to build up uh, their their infrastructure in terms of equipment, but the technology and how it works isn't the biggest problem. And I think we heard that at the last meeting was was the administration side of it and scheduling. You know, getting mm, all yeah. the scaling down so everything flowed, the workflow in terms of embedding the telehealth services into workflow uh, was a big problem, not, uh, m- much more so than the technology and integrating. Mm. It. So it's not just mm. video, but it is all of that integration. And that that will, you know, but but that's now, you know, I think people, there's a much bigger recognition of that. Mm. That's, that's for sure. Plus, plus, as we move ahead, I think, and now we know, you know how important equity is mm. uh, and make sure that when we make these improvements that we're not increasing the digital divide uh, that we're not holding back on innovation but that we actually do and then that's another area where education and health I think can work mm. very closely together uh, as they have you know uh, as uh, they have perhaps in the past and and perhaps trying to overcome that so when we do have mm. you know have some opportunities there that's for sure I, mi- I might just add you know in terms of a, if we just have a, a minute or so just a vision I still have a vision that and I think there's an opportunity and it was a report that we did dare I say way back in 2005 and it was commissioned by the Ministry of Health at the time they commissioned a telehealth research group at the time I thought well, this is exciting we're really going to get somewhere here but we, we uh, it was Dr. Jan White, who was CEO of Waikato at District Health Board at the time, led the group. And I mean, people like Stu Gowland on, on the group, who was the founder of Mobile Surgical Services and a number of others. And essentially what we, re, what we recommended, we did a stock take of what was happening in 2005, but what we recommended was a, a service delivery channel for telehealth. And some of us who have looked back on it, it's, it's not that different <laughs> from what what we'd say today and what I you know this vision of hubs, for example, it's the size of this country. And what we recommended in the model at the time was built was was adapted from Canada's health infoway. 
And if Canada's health, if they could do hub, hub and spoke models for provision of, of telehealth in, in centralizing some services uh, and spoking some others. And I, th- I, you know, personally feel that that's, you know, that's is a vision really that we should keep in our minds that there's lots of opportunities for us to do mm. that. Uh, and for district health boards and and primary sectors to work more closely together to hmm. to use telehealth channels in that way. Yeah, true. And uh, knowing what you like, Pat, even though you've you've, uh, I, I don't even think you would w- use the word retirement, would you? And, and uh, well, I certainly wouldn't <laughs> apply that to you. Uh, I could just see you dusting off that business case, and you'll you'll get a group of people together and next thing next thing uh, that, that'll be your next project. And and good well, on you too for doing that. <laughs> Hey, talking about that, talking about projects, and this is a personal one that you know what I can't let you get away without sharing with us how your um uh, learning how to fly a plane is going. You know, just just because you've got nothing else to do, you, you suddenly decide you're gonna you're gonna be a pilot. You know, That's absolutely fantastic. lifelong lifelong ambition that I started a couple of times, a couple of false starts, but no, I, I'll be starting my practicals again. I had to, we couldn't do any of it during during lockdown, whatever, but I'm starting practicals again within a couple of weeks and I've got another course to do. So it'll keep me, it'll keep me busy. It'll keep me busy. But I do, ever since I was a little kid, I've just loved being in small planes and getting up up there and, and flying around. So yes, I'm looking forward to it. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Good on you. <laughs> yeah. And have you had, as part of that uh, training, you, you have to jump out of them and do a bit of parachuting as well? Or? Uh, well, that? that's not a part of the training for the PPR, but I have done a skydive. I had a, a couple of years oh, ago. Wow. I did do a skydive as, as a birthday present. My my dear late husband would not let me do it, so I had to wait until he was gone, and then I was able to do my very first skydive from thirteen thousand feet. And I'd do it again. It was it was an wow. absolute thrill. Yeah, that's impressive. That's cool. And and actually, uh, talking about the McLaren connection, you you're still running the McLaren business uh, is that is that the best way to put it or not uh yes i did i've kept it going since since phil passed away it's mclaren motorsport was our company and the website that we've got which is is selling motorsport memorabilia and it's all from mm-hmm. my personal collections plus a lot of stories haven't done terribly a lot with it uh in the last couple of years but now that i've got i should have some more spare time i'll be able to uh, spend some time on that again so yeah uh, i keep that legacy going that's that's okay, a, great. That's another passion of mine. Anything to do with motorsport mm. is a big passion. Mm-hmm. And legacy is right. That's a massive part of, um, in, in fact, Kiwi history, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think the lots of Kiwis right now, we're, we're all rooting for in, in the Indy Series for Scott Dixon this year. That's for sure. Yes. And yes. We're, we're happy to see the McLaren name doing much better again in Formula One. That's making mm-hmm. a, lot of, a lot of us are happy again to see it there and even to see the McLaren doing well in Indy. So. Uh, so yes, the small little country at the bottom of the world has has more than pulled its weight in motor. Yeah, we seem to do well with that sort of thing. Um, yeah, and we have a history of it too. And and then we we jump on sailing boats and do well at that. And then we Absolutely. we grab a we grab a rugby ball and we do well at that. And and I could probably keep going with a number of other things, but you know that's. Uh, <laughs> It's just, just, and I'm just doing that plug, Pat, because you know we've we've got international listeners. So we um, actually, I shouldn't make too much noise about that, really, because it, um, yeah, yeah, God's own, as we call it here in New Zealand, is that's our secret. We don't really want, you know, too many people coming here anymore, do we? We, we just keep it to us, keep it to ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> 
huge myself. We get much better rates on domestic travel, won't we, for a while? <laughs> yeah, we will do. Yeah, yeah. Actually, it's very difficult to come here at the moment. Come, in fact, it's difficult to go to any country at the moment. So, uh, but but that won't last forever. And hey, so look. Thanks, Pat. This time's gone really fast, and uh, I want to get you back on. I, when you've got that pilot's license, I want you to come back on, and we'll do a. You know, I want you to tell us how how it's going, and um, you know, just how some how easy it is, and all that sort of stuff. So, we'll, you know, and and how you've progressed that business case for for a spoke, um, hub and spoke system. Uh, yeah, who knows? Uh, that's the thing with with um, with how you how you roll, isn't it, Pat? Absolutely, absolutely. I'm never, I'm never without projects. That's for sure. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. Oh, great. Yeah, and thank you. You know, like how I started the session. I want to fin- finish it. I just, I think it's a, a big thanks for all that you've done and and continue to do, frankly. And and I know the people that you've worked with. There's, um, you're one of those rare people in the health system, Pat, where uh, I've never heard anybody have a bad word about you. And, um, <laughs> I, I can't say that about myself. So, so, uh, but, but you, you, you know, I don't think you can operate in New Zealand's health system because it's, it's, whilst New Zealand's a small place, health is actually plays a big part in New Zealand and um, memories are long. So, you know, you, you've got a huge amount of respect uh, for everything that you've achieved. So thank you for that. And um, hey, listeners, thank you for tuning in. Uh, I, I know that you have, would have been fascinated by this episode with uh, Pat Kerr. And um, make sure to share, uh, hit the share button, share it with your friends. Uh, as, I, as I always say, you've got to share the love around. All these stories are fantastic. So thanks again, Pat, and look forward to catching up with you again. Thanks, Scott. Thank you for listening to the Digital Health Insights Podcast with Scott Errol. Make sure to subscribe and join us again for more news, views and stories from key health and tech leaders. For more information, please head to our website at www.nzhit.nz where you'll find links to resources, news, events and much more.